Today we're going to start in Revelation 9. And my point here is not to talk about the end times and all that. I just want to uh, introduce you to a character that you may not know in the Bible. Revelation 9, 1 to 12. John is having a vision. He's seeing spiritual things and he's trying to put them in earthly language for us. And he says, The fifth angel sounded, that means blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and a smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and not find it, and they will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like women's hair and teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. And they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings on their tails and the power was to hurt men five months and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in hebrew is abaddon but in greek it was the name apollyon and one woe is past and beholds two more woes are coming after these things okay my point today is not to tell you about the locusts the flying scorpions these demonic monsters that come out of hell there's a lot of debate about what these things are and what that will look like when it happens. And people envision like attack helicopters and things out of this passage and some crazy ideas. But uh, really, all I want to draw for you today is I want, before we get into the rest of the sermon, this is just an introduction. I need you to know that these demonic monster things exist. These bugs from hell, scorpions with wings that sting people so badly that they want to die, but they don't. And there is a king over these things named Abaddon. Hebrew, his name, Hebrew name is Abaddon and his Greek name is Apollyon. And I've wondered all my life, knowing, reading this passage, is that the, the same as Apollo that I learned about in middle school Greek mythology class? And it is. I looked it up this week and, and it is. This is a reference to Apollo of the Greek mythology. God says that that spirit is real. There's a king of hell, the angel of the abyss, the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name is Apollyon. Abaddon means destruction or father of destruction. Apollyon means the destroyer. So it's the same name in two different languages. And I just needed to introduce you to this character. There's a real spirit. There's lots of debate on whether this is just another name for Satan or is this a separate spirit. I don't know, but he's the king of hell, so probably Satan, just another name for him. That doesn't really matter for our purposes today. Uh, I'll just be referring to him as Polyon later on. Okay, now I'm going to seem like I'm going to totally change directions and we're going to 1 Corinthians 9, but we'll come back to Mr. Angel of Hell. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 10, 13, Paul is writing to us this passage is warning us not to rest on our righteousness of the past. That nothing we did yesterday counts for today. 
We have to live the real Christian life today. We cannot rest on what we did yesterday. Amen? And he starts out, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes to win is disciplined in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an unperishable crown. Okay, in the Greek and Roman times, when they'd run in Olympics or they'd have the gladiator games or the chariot races or any sort of athletic contest, they didn't have medals or trophies. They, they had the little um, laurel wreath that they'd put on their head. Yeah? You've seen enough history or know enough to know about that. Okay, Paul says, anybody who's a serious athlete is disciplined in all things. Meaning, I control what I eat, I make myself exercise every day, I'm going to train for this triathlon or this Spartan race or this marathon or whatever. I'm disciplined every day I get up and I say, I can't rest on what I did yesterday, I have to work out again today. Or I'm not going to win the race. Hello? And Paul says, they are super strict and disciplined and hard on themselves and they're just doing it for a worthless earthly crown and we are running for eternity so how much more should i be disciplined with myself that i don't rest on what what happened yesterday i get up and i live it today and tomorrow i get up and i live it tomorrow and i make myself i discipline myself to run the race for heaven amen thus i run not with uncertainty thus i fight not as one who beats the air but i discipline my body and i bring it into submission lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Four Sundays ago, I told you about Jesus telling the story about the man who was so sorry for his sin that he was beating his own chest as he prayed in sorrow for his sin. And I take Jesus literally because Paul said he did it. When Paul says, I discipline my body, the word there is beat or flog. I beat my body into obedience. When I'm tempted to sin, I make myself run from it. I beat my body into submission because I don't want to have preached to others and then I myself be disqualified. That's a shocking, shocking claim. Paul says, I realize the fact that I've written more than half of the New Testament doesn't matter. The fact that I've seen hundreds of miracles doesn't matter. The the fact that I've preached to thousands of people doesn't matter if I don't live it today. What I did yesterday, what I accomplished yesterday, what God did in my life yesterday doesn't matter today. And I'm not saying it doesn't matter as in have value. I mean it doesn't count for anything if I'm living as a hypocrite today. I could, Paul says, I could lose it all if I get lazy. If you have three months to train for a marathon and at a month and a half into it, you're in tip-top shape. You're like, hey, I'm in shape. And you quit. You ain't going to win the race a month and a half later. You can't rest. You can't say, I've arrived. I'm in shape. I can do it. It's a month and a half away, but I can quit. You're not going to stay in the shape you're in today a month and a half from now if you don't keep doing it. Paul's point is, in your Christian life, it's the same thing. You cannot say, well, I was baptized 20 years ago or 40 years ago or, and I've gone to church all my life and I know most of the Bible stories. No, every day we get up and we run the race. Hello? Okay. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers, he's meaning their Israelite ancestors, our fathers were under the cloud. They were under the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke when they were in the wilderness with Moses. 
uh, when they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. He said they were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. He's talking about the, when the Red Sea parted and they went through the water. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. Talking about manna there that God provided for the people. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Again, Paul's point is what happened in the past doesn't save you today. He's, he's saying, look at our ancestors, folks. God saved them out of Egypt. God baptized them in the Red Sea. He provided them miraculous water. He provided them miraculous food. And when they disobeyed, he killed them. You cannot say, well, I said yes to Jesus 40 years ago if you don't say yes to him today. You can't rely on what you've said, seen in the past it's what matters is what's going on in your heart today. Where are you at now? Are you actually living in faith and obedience or are you being a hypocrite? The past doesn't count for today. You can't quit. Now these things become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And that do not become adulterers as some of them did. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as an example, and we were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Paul, in the New Covenant, says the things in the Old Testament are examples to us. You cannot say that what happened in the past will save you from what you're hiding today, if you're not really living it. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That is an extremely hopeful passage. God says there's always a way out. And that is a very hopeful promise. But it is also a warning that there is never an excuse. There is always a way out when you're tempted. You can never say, well, I just had to do it, or the devil made me do it. And your past baptism is not protection if you're living hypocrisy today. The affiliation with Jesus, you've seen miracles, God provided you in ways past, in the past. If you're currently living in hypocrisy, then none of that in the past matters. There's never an excuse for sin today. That's the context of just one sentence I want to draw out to us today, and it's 1 Corinthians 10.10. Do not complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Who is the destroyer? Apollyon, the king of hell. Complaining opens your front door to the angel of the abyss and brings him into your house. God says when they complained, they were destroyed by the destroyer. Jesus tells us in Revelation 9 who the destroyer is. He's the king of hell. And when we complain, we're giving him access to our lives. Don't complain. Some of you think you're complaining because it's hard. It might be hard because you're complaining. Because when you complain, the king of hell shows up with all of his winged scorpions 
and just sting, 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 sting. Self-pity, unforgiveness, anger, pain, hurt feelings, discontent, unhappiness, and you're really feeling it all, but it's coming from your own mouth. So Paul is referring to a very specific story when he says they complained and were destroyed. It's Numbers chapter 11, so we're going to go to that story. Again, this is the Israelites in the wilderness after God had brought them out of Egypt and they're following Moses through the wilderness and on their way to the promised land, and they don't have any food. They're out in the desert, there's quarter million of them, maybe as many as two million of them, and there's no food. And they complain. God sends them manna every morning, bread-type flour forms on the ground like dew, and they can pick it off and use it, and they grind it just like flour and bake bread, and God rains down food for them every morning, and they complain about variety in their diet. This is Numbers 11, verse 1 and 2. The people complained, and it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. In the Hebrew there, the word anger and aroused are not there. There's the word nose and fire. God snorted fire. He was so mad that they were complaining about the food he was giving them. We're tired of this manna, God. Manna everywhere. Just manna. Pancakes and manna muffins and manna burgers and manna and cheese. He's got nothing, God. And God snorts fire. He's so mad that they complain. God hates complaining. So the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire was quenched. Skipping to verse 4. Now the mixed multitude among them who, who were among them yielded to intense craving. I want to highlight that for you. We'll come back to that later. Intense craving or intense desire. We've had the word complaining and now we have the word intense desire. And the people of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish when we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up and there is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. The people said, God, it was better when we were slaves. We had it better when we were slaves and now you've rescued us and life sucks. God, it was, it was better when I wasn't trying to serve you, Lord. When I was just a pagan in the world, my life was fine and now I'm trying to be a good Christian and I got all these problems. Gripe, gripe, whine, self-pity. Come on. Come on. We had it better when I wasn't trying to serve you, God. Continuing, jumping down to verse 10. Then Moses heard the people whining. I want to highlight that word. We'll come back to it in a minute. We've got the word complaining. We've got intense desire or craving. And we've got whining. Moses heard the people whining, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was extreme. And Moses also was very aggravated. Very aggravated is an understatement. In the Hebrew there, there's the word fury and the word fountain. <laughs> Moses, it literally says Moses blew his stack. All right? Moses erupts with fury that they are complaining. God says, all right, tired of manna? You want meat? I'll give you meat. Here you go. Chapter 11, verse 31 through 34 now the Lord sent a wind and brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction there were quail flying at about five, uh, three feet above the ground. So the people went out and caught quail all that day and throughout the night and all the next day too. And no one gathered less than 50 baskets. 
50 bushel basketfuls. In Hebrew, the word is 10 homers, but that means nothing to us because we don't measure in Simpsons. <laughs> 50 basketfuls. But while they were gorging themselves on the meat, while it was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord blazed against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. So the place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of gluttony, because they buried the people who had craved meat from Egypt. God gave them what they complained about and then killed them when they ate it because of their complaining. God hates complaining. I would guess that our understanding of complaining is rather elementary. We know I'm not supposed to grumble, I'm not supposed to gripe. We use words like venting to excuse ourselves. Well, I just need to blow off a little steam. I just need to vent. And it's not at all excusable. You may think that complaining is only the five-year-old saying, I don't like Brussels sprouts or, does, or whatever mom has cooked. I don't really want to eat this. And I know that, you know, if I, I hate my job, okay, that's complaining. Uh, I hate snow and cold and grumble, grumble, and it's going to snow tonight and rah, 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 winter, winter, and, you know. Every spring I get such terrible allergies. I just hate allergy season. Okay, okay, kind of all understand. You kind of all understand that that's complaining. But that's really a kindergarten understanding of what it is. It's a lot more serious. If you think your husband or wife is hard to get along with, that's complaining. My brother's a jerk. My sister-in-law is crazy. We're constantly saying negative things, pointing out negative things, saying unthankful and unhappy things. It's in our words, it's in our jokes, it's in the memes we post online, and some of them are hilarious, but it's still complaining. <laughs> complaining is in your thoughts and your feelings also. It, it really is, because God says the people gave in to intense desire. And some of, some of us have, because of real need or real pain, you can give yourself over to intense desire for your situation to change. And you spend all day longing, fantasizing, dreaming about a different life. And it's not just unthankfulness. It's wishing your problems away, dreaming of a different job or a different marriage or a different living situation. And it's actually complaining Maybe you're not even saying these things out loud, but you're complaining in your own heart. Maybe complaining to God. Why do I have to go through this and so-and-so didn't? And why does my kid have this disease and nobody else's does? And why, does, why did you give me this impossible woman to be married to, God? And why did you give me this jerk of a husband? And complaining, desiring something different. And you get so un unhappy, it ends in adultery and divorce. Adultery is just complaining on steroids. It's the next logical step. If you're unhappy in your marriage and you're, maybe you don't ever say anything, but you meditate on unhappiness, that's complaining. If you meditate on your financial problems and how you can't have what you want and you buy things you can't afford just because you desire them so strongly, Bankruptcy is just extreme complaining. Credit card debt is complaint 
turned into a number. God hates complaining. And when we do that, we're opening the door to the prince of hell. Come on in. Here, sit here on the couch and run our family. Here, you know what? I want you to sit right in the center of our marriage while I dwell on how unhappy I am. And maybe I don't ever gripe my husband out or my wife, but I meditate on the things that are wrong instead of the things that are good. And those locusts come in and they just sting and they sting and they sting and they sting. And it's unhappiness and unthankfulness and self-pity and regret and bitterness and unforgiveness. And Apollyon is working in your life to tear you apart because you're complaining. Another word that was used in the Bible is whining. That word in Hebrew is uh, complex. It can be translated a lot of ways. It can be translated complaining or whining. It can also be translated weeping because it, in, it absolutely it includes tears. The people are so upset in the desert without food that they're crying. Like if you're in the desert with a quarter million people without any food, that might be an okay time to complain or to be afraid. But they're so upset they're crying. And God calls it whining. You can have very real hurt feelings and you're still wrong. Suck it up. But God, my husband is a jerk. No, you're wrong. You're complaining. You're focusing on the wrong thing. Your feelings have nothing to do with whether you're right or wrong. These are real tears, and God is furious. I'm not saying all tears are wrong. I'm saying in this case, they felt so sorry for themselves that they were in real pain, but they did it to themselves. It wasn't God. So whining, self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself. I know some of you suffer from depression, but some of you pet it. It's your friend. Because you think about it all night. You meditate on it, on how bad you feel. You talk about how much pain you're in. You think about how hard life is. And it's just this constant inner monologue of whining. And the difficulty is real. And the tears are real and the pain is real. But God says, quit thinking about that stuff. Trust me. If you go through life, I'm so unhappy and I'm so hurt and nobody understands how bad I've got it or how hard it is and why do I have to go through this and so and so doesn't. You can talk your, think yourself into a place of hopelessness that is suicidal. I know it. I'm not here to rebuke anybody. I'm, I'm here to tell you what the Lord has taught me in the last month. Complaining leads to suicide. It is from hell. When Job, if anybody, if anybody besides Jesus on the cross has a right to complain about his life circumstances, it's Job. And Job says, when his friends are telling him, Job, you're the one that's wrong, he's like, nope, I did not do anything wrong. I did not do anything to deserve this. And that was true, actually. 
But he says, I am going to voice my complaints to God. And so for 30-some chapters, his friends are blaming him, and Job is complaining. And God shows up at the end of the book, and God does not defend himself to Job. He doesn't give Job any explanation at all. He just shows up and says, all right, Job, here I am. Let me have it. Can you make stars? Did you make the ocean? Let's see you make a mountain, Job. And Job says at the end of the book, I loathe myself before you. I have nothing to complain about. Job's perfectly just, actually, in his complaints. But when he sees God, he says, no, no, I'm going to shut my mouth. I have nothing to complain about. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. In the book, you can see this. Job goes from mourning the death of his children and the loss of everything he's got to anger, to self-righteousness and complaining, to I curse the day I was born. I want to die. That is the progress of our own thinking when you let Apollyon in the door to your mind. He is the destroyer. He wants to kill you. And the way he gets in the front door is complaining. And then it just ramps up to self-pity. And then it ramps up to hopelessness. And that ramps up to, I want to die. Another thing that the Israelites did in the wilderness that God called complaining was being afraid. When they're stuck between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. It's, a, it's literally a life-threatening situation. There's nowhere for them to go. Their water is in front of them, and Pharaoh's army is coming to kill them. And they cried out to God, and they, they're mad at Moses for leading them where they are. And God says they're complaining. God, you are really hardcore about this. Like, in a life-threatening situation, I'm not allowed to be afraid? No. You're not. Not when you know God. It's complaining. When they get out in the wilderness and there's no food, they complain and he gives them manna. There's a, there's a time when they get into a particular place in the desert where there's no water. There's like a quarter million or more people and probably four times that many animals and there's no water. If I'm in the desert with no water, it might be time to panic. And God is angry with them that they don't trust him. Because I have shown my faithfulness to you. You saw the plagues I brought on Egypt. You saw the Red Sea part. You live under the glory fire of the Holy Spirit. You are insulting me with your panic. And he tells Moses to go over and strike the rock with his stick. And he does. And water comes out. Such a gusher of a well that everybody gets watered just fine. But God calls their fear complaining. Now, if there was ever a rational fear, it's the fear of there's no water in the desert. But even that, I would think we, we probably see complaining as the opposite of thankfulness, but actually complaining is the opposite of faith. Complaining is the voice of hopelessness. It's thankful, unthankfulness for sure, but it's, it's speaking faithlessness and speaking panic or fear. When the ten spies come back with Joshua and Caleb and they're looking at the promised land and they come back, oh, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. That was a fact. It was true. 
but God still called it complaining. He called it faithlessness, and he killed the other ten spies because they turned Israel against him. God, God wasn't worried about the giants. He's much bigger than them. Fear, speaking faithlessness and hopelessness or even panic is complaining, and God hates it. Another thing God calls complaining is rebellion, again, challenging an authority. When Miriam challenges Moses, her little brother, for authority, she's like, hey, I'm a prophetess too. I can, I can help lead Israel. God strikes her with leprosy. And Dathan and Abiram come and they're like, Moses, we want your job. And we're not going to listen to you anymore. Moses goes to God and God says, they're not complaining against you. They're complaining against me. Because they didn't like Moses' decisions. They complained against him, but God took it personal. The earth opens up and swallows them. When Michael judged David for his passionate worship before the Ark of the Covenant, the destroyer worked in her life, did it not? The destroyer destroyed her fertility, and she had no, no children the rest of her life because of her challenging David. Gossiping, backbiting, challenging authority, God sees it all as complaining. But Psalm 17, verse 3 to 4, the psalmist says to God, You have tested my heart and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. I have kept away from the paths of Apollyon. What's the path? Well, the path, it's destruction. But how do I avoid the path? There's nothing in my heart, nothing coming out my mouth. We would think that if, I keep, if I've learned enough to keep my mouth shut, I know James says my tongue is set on fire by hell, and that if I can control my tongue, I can control about anything. Uh, so yeah, I've learned to be quiet, and I just self-control and push my way through life, and I, I don't complain, I don't grumble, I just work hard and make it work. But he also says, there's, Lord, you know there's nothing in my heart. Hello? can get along pretty well with your tongue, maybe, uh, if you're particularly self-controlled, but your heart be full of resentments about how life turned out or didn't turn out, who hurt you and who's causing you this trouble, and if I didn't have that person in my life, it'd be a lot easier kind of stuff. Lord, you search my heart and my mouth, and I will keep away from the paths of the destroyer. We don't, want to be on, we don't want to be in his, in his road. I don't mean to make it trivial, but this, the, these thousands of lo stinging locusts or winged scorpions, however you want to look at them, and then Apollyon is kind of like the old video games where you have to go through all the little guys and then you get to the boss at the end. In your life, the more you complain, the more resentment or unforgiveness or whining you have in your heart, you're just dealing with these little stinging locusts. And then at the end, you're going to meet the destroyer and he will kill you. He will ruin your marriage. He will destroy your finances. He will destroy your faith. He will, he will kill you. The good news is Jesus said, I came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the works of the destroyer. Come on. You have been giving access to to Apollyon, to your body by complaining about how much pain you're in all the time or how tired you are all the time and nobody knows how hard I've got it or you're complaining about your marriage or you're complaining about your kids or your parents. My parents are so controlling, I can't wait to get out of this house. 
And it's just these constant little stings of rebellion and sassiness and fighting. It's going to end in death. Come on, how many people do you know that couldn't wait to turn 18 and they get out in 18 and their life is ruined in six months? Ruined. Because they were so complaining about their parents when they were 16. Couldn't wait to get out. That's Apollyon saying, come on, come on, come with me. Come with me, we'll have fun. It's resent mom and dad. I've kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Well, Mitch, how am I supposed to deal with my problems then if I can't vent about it once in a while? Well, you can't. A lot of you come home from work or your day or whatever it is and you just vent at your spouse about all the tough things that happened today and my boss is a jerk and the kids at school are crazy and your spouse is not there for you to unload your problems on. That's not what marriage is about. You didn't marry somebody so that you can dump your burdens on them at the end of every day. You got Jesus for that. You're married so that you can bless the other person and take care of them. Do you want your spouse to dread you coming home at the end of the day because you just unload on them? And it's nothing personal. You're just griping about your day. Like, that's no fun. Come on. I better back up. I see, I see people looking at each other. But then the Bible says that these people complained to God. And God got furious. Like, can I not pray about these things? Yes, you can. But I've told you in the past, there's a difference. If you pray and you for a half hour, you just, God, this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem. And at the end of your prayer time, if you aren't changed, all you have done is complain. But if at the end of your prayer time, you have hope and joy and faith and peace, that's prayer. Just like David in the Psalms. He is totally honest, 100% with God. Just bleh. Just give it all, God. But at the end of them, he's always like, God, you're on the throne and I love you and I know it's all going to be okay and, and I give you worship and I love you and you're awesome. If your prayer time doesn't change your attitude, you're not praying, you're complaining. But if your prayer time gets you aligned with God and you find salvation... And forgiveness and peace, and then you're actually praying. And it does get that stuff out of you. It does. You leave it at the cross, it's under the blood of Jesus, and it's gone. And you're ready to forgive your wife again. You're ready to take on the boss again. You're ready to put up with your husband another day. Whatever the situation is. Hello. So, yes, we can talk to God about it, but not complaining. Even, even our relationship with God is not for complaining. It's not okay. It makes him snort fire. Like, you know how much I love you and how much I've done for you and how much I've taken care of you. And, and the, past, the past is the past. What, what about it today? What are we going to do today? Are you going to live it or not? Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. God hates complaining. Don't do it. Additional to that, why would you open your front door to the prince of hell? Some of you need to repent. Some of you know exactly what you need to repent for. I'm going to give you some time. Just close your eyes and bow your head and just get right with God. If you don't know what you might need to uh, repent for, ask him, Lord, is there anything about this word that I need to respond to? 
Is there something I'm blind to and I'm not aware of? My attitude, my words, my heart, wrong thinking, unhappy, unthankful, complaining thinking, whatever it is. I'll give you some time to get right with Jesus right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. You're teaching us the truth about our own hearts and tongues. And we confess, Lord, that this is true of us. That we like to complain about politics. We like to complain about the school and the government and the boss and our family. It makes us feel self-righteous. We like to vent our frustrations. But Lord, we see that when we do that, we are we're opening the door to Apollyon, and we don't want the destroyer in our homes, in our minds, in our bodies. We don't want him in our marriages, in our families, in our jobs. Lord, save us from our sin. Forgive us. Lord, you said that our tongues are set on fire by hell, and we, we see that they are. That we create our own problems by the things that we speak and the things that we meditate on. And there's those scorpion stings of hell, of, of hurt and tears and self-pity and offense and unforgiveness and physical pain. And, and we just gripe and mumble and gossip and complain about the decisions of those in charge. And Lord, none of that is, none of that is your kingdom, Lord. It's all just bondage create a lot of our own pain choosing unhappiness I ask your forgiveness Lord for blaming other people and situations for our unhappiness instead of owning it ourselves we have no right to be hopeless because you have proven yourself faithful and good and loving miraculously providing over and over and over again we have no right to insult you with fear or hopelessness. There is always a way. There's always a reason for joy. There's always a reason for thankfulness. There's always hope. Lord, forgive us for venting onto each other gross unthankfulness. I also thank you, Lord, that you are our burden carrier and taker. And when we bring things to the cross, you put them under the blood of Jesus and we find forgiveness peace and joy and grace strength to endure to forgive to find joy on purpose thank you that you correct our attitudes we repent of our complaining and our rebellion and our whining and our fear we ask your forgiveness in Jesus name thank you you wash us white as snow again Lord, for any, every person in the room whose eyes are being opened or for the first time, something they hadn't seen before. Oh, yeah, I do that all the time. I didn't know that was complaining. I didn't know that was giving the destroyer access. Lord, I pray that you would give peace that passes understanding, love that passes knowledge, that there'd be washed, all that sin to be washed away and that you would teach them how to develop new habits in their thoughts and in their speaking and in their attitude. Lord, for those who see that there's a problem, but they're stuck and they don't know how, how to find a way out, I pray that you would show up, you would reveal yourself, 
that you would destroy the works of the destroyer. Destroy the works of the destroyer, Lord. Rebuild what he has broken down. Even when it was our own fault, Lord. We ask your forgiveness. We ask you to rebuild what has been destroyed. Teach us to own our tongues and our own attitudes. I bless every person here with joy and contentment, peace. In Jesus' name, amen.